<laughs> well, looks like I've been on another unannounced hiatus. And sorry about that. It's been a little crazy coming into the holiday season and with a few other things that are happening in my life. But welcome back to Displaced Underdogs. I am your host, Morgan. And what a crazy time of year. Wrapping up 2019 is something I am all too ready for. It has been a very full year of personal changes and growth for myself and my family. And I'm feeling a lot more confident than I have in quite some time and in a few years past of where my life is going. And I'm going to keep these positive changes and continue to grow in positive, healthier, and exciting ways. So this journey was a long time coming and I'm excited to be taking the right steps and hope to continue making them. But of course, there's a lot of work involved and it kind of consumed me for a little bit. And uh, one of the healthier and exciting things I'm doing is challenging myself with one of my favorite hobbies and or pastimes, which is sewing. I always loved sewing and crocheting and it is a part of the reason I've not posted a new episode in what feels like forever. So I've always loved sewing and I'm a huge history enthusiast. If you've listened to my Thanksgiving episode, when I first started this podcast in 2018, wow, already been a year and some change doing this, which is exciting don't have the episodes to really prove that I find that exciting, but uh, I'm going to be working on producing more quality, better content more regularly. And I know I keep saying this, but it's really going to happen. So, but you know that I love history and I like going in and delving deep into those rabbit holes and getting stuck there. So, yeah. So, and what better way to do it than to actually kind of recreate it and live it a little bit by sewing. And I've challenged myself in a big way. For me, I've started to work on a 1900-1902 Edwardian walking skirt and jacket. And let, let's be clear. I've always loved the 1800s. Um the many fashions of the Victorian era and the early 1900s, like before 1920s, Edwardian style clothes. So naturally I wanted to add a few pieces into my wardrobe and I like sewing. And because I like sewing, yeah. And when I've challenged myself by taking on this whole Edwardian walking skirt and jacket project, well... Oh man, let me tell you what, I completely immersed myself into the history of clothing and along with it, society as well. Because fashion trends off of societal are based off of societal standards and vice versa. And it is fascinating how they're so intertwined. But I didn't start immediately with the skirt and jacket, like the outer pieces that everybody knows that are so iconic and like, so intricate. No, no. Nay, nay, friends. Nay, nay, dear friends. 
that's the folly of fools I've learned. Because again, I immersed myself completely into this project. And I've learned. I want to be as historically accurate as I can, thus leading me down a very interesting rabbit hole of purchasing wonderful sewing texts describing and explaining in painstaking detail every which way to fell a seam, sew buttonholes by hand, and all such manner of things. And in order to achieve the classic silhouette, like the pigeon-breasted silhouette of the Edwardian era of yester century, foundations are key. And what are foundations, you may ask? Undergarments. Yes, that's right. Women's undergarments. In order to get that historically classical look that we so love and adore in those pictures of, like, the bustled ladies or the huge crinoline Scarlett O'Hara type dresses, you have to start with the foundations. You have to start from the base and ground up. <laughs> so I recently just finished drafting a pattern for the very first time, might I add, I have never drafted a pattern before. One of the historical texts that I bought has 79 different historically accurate patterns that they released in magazines and newspapers. So they're like tiny and they go off of this system called the diamond cutting system. So you have to scale those up and that's drafting a pattern. And oh my gosh, let me tell you, that was, that was interesting. And I kind of screwed up on my drawers, which is why it's good to start with the foundations because this is all the under things. These are all the frilly lacy under things that nobody's going to see. So yay. So I recently just finished drafting a pattern and sewing together a pair of historical ladies split drawers. And I am currently in the end stages of finishing a chemise to go with it. And then the next step is a real, real scary, terrifying prospect of making a corset. I've never made a corset, and this will be my first time making a corset ever, and uh, I'm really questioning my life decisions on this. So, and while in the process of all this making and creating and researching, it made me think back to my earlier episode, the train wreck that was the episode of Body Positivity. So without further ado, let's revisit that train wreck, shall we? And chat about a few things regarding fashionable body types or fashionable silhouettes then and now based off of historical costuming dressmaking. That's going to get interesting and it's probably going to meander every which way than the way that I wanted to because, you know, I was tired as all get out when I was writing out my talking points on this particular episode. So how about we sit back, plug in, relax, and enjoy this very last episode of 2019. Yay!
Okay, so I'm not going to completely... Well, okay. I want to start off with a quote from one of my favorite Instagram historical costumer dressmaker. I hope I say this right. All of the ish. A-L-A-T-H-E-I-S-H. And, and I think she made an excellent point in this post. It's quite long, but there's a ton of value in it. And I'm not 100% sure that I want to quote it word for word because copyright issues, I guess. I don't... I also just... But, but it is out there for the public. So, and I am citing her... She's amazing, by the way. She's, like, fantastic. And I'm jealous of her skill levels. And I, um, instead of, like, sitting here turning into a green-eyed monster, I'm like, I am going to achieve this. So I'm going to step up my game. But I, she's one of the lovely historical dressmaker costumers that I follow on the Instagrams. And, uh came across a post where she explained it absolutely beautifully. So, as we're coming into a new year, this whole new year, new you stuff and everything, like, I think, I think this kind of brings a point. Some major points that are, again, it, it's just, it's excellent, it's well written, it's well stated, and, and it does have a lot of value in it, even if you're not into historical costuming. So yeah, I'm, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do the whole quote. <laughs> there we go. Um, so she says, all the ish says, let's talk 18th century undergarments and unrealistic body standards, folks. These are all the things I have to wear to achieve a fashionable 1780s shape. Well, except the pocket. Side note, Morgan speaking here. She has a picture of the many layers needed to achieve that fashionable shape that she's talking about. Okay, back to the quote. A disturbing trend I see among those who don't understand historical fashion is to look at this and say women having to fake it, quotes around fake it, to get the right shape means historical body standards were ridiculously oppressive. That's BS. What's most oppressive isn't the shape women are expected to take, but rather how society demands they take that shape. I'll break it down. No one in the 18th century believed women had conical torsos with hips that stuck out 12 inches on each side. No one wondered where a naked woman's massive bum or sky-high cleavage had gone. Everyone knew these were achieved through stays, panniers, false rumps, petticoats, and, quotes, helps, quote. In short, people knew the shape of a woman naked was far different from her shape clothed, and they accepted that. But as clothing became less covering and there was less room for supporting garments, these types of shape expectations didn't just go away. Women are just now expected to achieve the fashionable silhouette without help. 
women are now expected to be the same shape in a bikini as in the biggest ball gown. My 29-inch waist will never conform to modern body standards, but when I throw on all these undergarments, it works great for the 18th century. And, full disclosure, I get no waist reduction in my stays. My waist actually goes up an inch after I layer everything on. In our modern age, it's certainly easier to peacefully exist while not complying with beauty standards. For example, I can go out in public with unstyled hair and not be called a, quote, whore. Yay! I can wear shorts in the summer and most people don't gasp. But as we enjoy these modern changes, we need to acknowledge their downside, that women are held to far higher physical standards now than they ever have been. And that's unfair. And that's the end of her quote. Again, it's a bit lengthy, but there's a lot of value in it. I could not agree more with this, nor have said it better myself. As we're coming in to the new year, like I said, and I see all the ads turning into fitness and healthier living, new year, new you, live your best life on YouTube ads, Hulu ads, and on social media, like on my social media feeds, I can't help but remember the past. Or I can't help remember that post and the past. When I also talk historical undergarments, folks bring up how corsets were medieval torture devices created by men because patriarchy and whatever other propaganda misinformation folks have and choose not to research. To achieve the classic Victorian look, women had a lot of, quote, help and created a lot of optical illusions to achieve it. They wore several layers, and that's what I'm learning while I'm making my Edwardian walking skirt and jacket, because the 1900s were just coming out of the Edwardian era, was just coming out of the Victorian era, so there's a lot of crossover and nods, too. So, let's break it down. First layer. You put on your stockings, your boots, or your shoes, your drawers, your chemise. And then the second layer was your corset. Your third layer, a corset cover to help smooth out seam lines and lace lines, and usually frilled lace ruffles on the front to help give the illusion of a fuller bust. Also, the corset cover was to protect your more intricate outer clothing from the metal bits of it it helped protect clothes from snags and stuff um from the corset from any metal pieces of the corset like the front busk closure so we're already like what three layers in fourth layer was a bustle cage or crinoline, or bum pad. Fifth layer was a petticoat, usually with a flounce or a ruffle along the bottom hem. The sixth layer was the main outer skirt. The seventh layer was the bodice next. 
and the eighth layer was a blouse with lace and lace embellishments again to give the illusion of a bigger bust ninth layer was the waistcoat vest and the tenth layer was like the jacket and on a particularly colder days eleventh layer of a mantle um like you you just they wore around like 12 layers usually of clothing and one of the directions in my historical pattern for the jacket is you take your bust measurement and you go up a size you go up from one inch from that so my bust I can get my measurements because I had to take them because I'm a good dressmaker and know how to actually measure myself correctly and just for full transparency here um wow I'm about to get real real intimate with you guys by giving you my measurements my bust is about 35 inches so in order to make this jacket I have to go off of a 36 inch bust because after I make all these layers, my bust is going to increase. Hey, hey, <laughs> my waist is about 32 inches, which again, parts of the jacket that are measured off of the waist, I'm going to have to go up a size and my hips are around 42 inches. So biggest part of my butt. Luckily, if I ever wanted to do a bustle or anything like that, all I really would have to do is a bum pad, honestly. All depending on if it's first bustle era, second bustle era, or some of the uh, more fuller skirts. Either way. <laughs> but, but again, most blouses I've found call for them to be made one size larger than your corset bust size. So... It could fit over the chemise corset and corset cover comfortably and properly. And these days, women only wear bra, panties, socks as their first layer. Then maybe some leggings if it's cold outside and maybe an undershirt, again, if it's cold outside. And then a shirt, jeans, and that's a day. Call her good. If a woman wears shapewear spandex, like shapewear, like either a spandex or girdles are making a comeback um, under her clothes and doubles up on the bras, you know, you wear one bra that's one size, like a push-up bra, and then you wear a larger bra over it to help create the illusion of a bigger bust, or you use breast tape and gel inserts to help enhance the appearance of your bust, for a date or pictures for social media and people find out that you do that, you're then called fake and whether it's intentionally or unintentionally made to feel bad about fooling everyone and judged for it more often than not rather harshly as well. So yeah, we are definitely held to far more higher 
stricter standards because when you do use what they used to call back in the day helps people feel like you're not being transparent and they feel like you're lying to them and that you they they fell in love with how you looked and that's not at all how you look because once that spandex comes off and the rolls come out oh my god what did i just oh no where did my hot girlfriend go who's this blobby creature i i mean it just it happens and and you know what on on that note it it's time for a little bit of a water break and i'll come back and explain a little more in depth and detail so i'm just gonna get me something to drink real quick stay tuned Okay, and we're back. So, as all the ish said in that Instagram post, women are held to far higher physical standards now than they ever have been. Women are just now expected to achieve the fashionable silhouette without help. Women are now expected to be the same shape in a bikini as in the biggest ball gown. And fun fact, we are starting to see a comeback of girdles to help women and men sculpt their figures or, well, sculpt their shape when exercise and diets can only go so far and surgery is just too costly and time-consuming for lost time from work and recovery and all that. And the fact that most insurance companies don't cover cosmetic surgery as well. So, um, and when you factor in everyone wanting to look picture perfect for social media shares views and likes and all that there's a ton of pressure out there to look a certain way and to achieve it naturally so as i said like if you use helps these days people tend to kind of when they find out even if they use them them even if they use them themselves Everybody likes to kick the prom queen, so yeah, it's kind of a blood sport, really. And it's kind of sad and tragic and says a lot about us, but um, yeah, it's, it's mm-hmm. so while back in bygone eras there was a certain pressure all their own to have a certain look, they also understood that very rarely was one able to naturally achieve it. Now, there will there will always be critics out there. And women in those days got a bit of heat for the many outfit wardrobe changes for every little occasion and for tight-lacing corsets, which you'll see a lot of anti-corset propaganda that has survived in historical texts. It's no different than some of the anti-bra campaigns from the 60s when women were burning their bras and fuck the man type deal. 
I mean, or, or when you see like the, from the 90s to 2000s, like early 2000s, most of the 90s into early 2000s, you'll see a lot of these campaigns that were against anorexia and, oh my gosh, go eat a hamburger. Nobody's really that small. E. But that was, but again, what a lot of people don't understand is that was more the social elite and a very small percentage of the population, like the top 1%, if you will. No different than today. In that regard, we don't truly vary very much. Like, the existing pictures and ads from those times are no different than the pictures in magazines today of thin models and only a small percentage of the population that will exist in that future generations will look back upon and be like, oh, wow, so this is what everyday people look like back in 2000? Holy crap. They were all so skinny and so sculpted and so... And that's not true. They were the models. They were the social elite. They were the stars of the era. So the difference is the fact that folks back then knew that women didn't look the same clothed as they did unclothed and like they understood that and they accepted it like you weren't exactly dogged on or dragged through the mud once your bustle came off and your corset came off and you know it's like oh oh god Yes, you are normal under there. That isn't... Nobody... Like, they understood there were layers. It was just a normal part of the dress back then. And in order to achieve a certain look, nobody's made that way, naturally. And and, and honestly, during the bustle era, the first bustle era, and the second bustle era of the Victorian era... Would you really want a woman that has, like, a foot and a half literal butt shelf back there naturally? Like, there, something would be wrong. You would be, like, that would almost be, like, foot binding or something where, you know, you'd have to, like, sit there and then they just, I don't know. It's, ah, uh, ah. Uh. It's so... So agree or disagree with the many layers and helps to create the optical illusions of the fashionable silhouette most of of the Victorian and even the Edwardian era, most of those people knew and didn't hold it against a woman that when stripped down, a woman's natural figure was different than when clothed. And fashion's always weird. Fashion always has their standards and who sets them for what reasons. I mean, back then it was what, again, high society, the queens, the kings, um, the social elite in Europe, what they were wearing, because quite frankly, also going into a lot of this historical um, costuming and dressmaking, uh, Americans were not the greatest seamstresses. (laughs) 
And they got a lot of their fashion hints and a lot of their inspiration from the Europeans. So, yes. I mean, there is a very, um, in my authentic Victorian dressmaking techniques, edited by Christina Harris, there's, there's a lovely, <laughs> there's, there's a lovely thing that they, in the introduction that they kind of go into. Although young girls were supposed to learn sewing at home, the evidence suggests that most American women didn't possess sufficient skills to teach their daughters how to sew properly. If a girl decided to become a professional dressmaker or seamstress, she typically served as an apprentice for about six months with a dressmaker, often beginning one fashion mag magazine of the time proclaimed, in comparative ignorance of the plainest of sewing, so that much of her time is lost in mastering the rudiments, which ought to have been familiar to her before she entered the workroom. At the end of six months, she has learned how to sew a straight seam, can put a dress together if it is properly cut out and basted, and if she be quick and ready with eye and needle, can, when the pattern is plainly indicated, put on a fold or a ruffle. This was in sharp contrast to male apprenticeships, which, for almost any trade, lasted for years rather than months. However, probably the most important reason American women were lacking in sewing skills pertained to class conventions. Many middle and upper class American women were raised to believe they would always be taken care of by men. Yes, they might learn to sew fancy ornamental stitches and embroidery, but why should they bother to learn the rudimentary skills? Not infrequently, these cultivated women became reduced in life, and although they seldom knew anything about dressmaking, it might be the only occupation open to them. She has been forced into sewing by circumstances, not because she understands or has any taste for the use of the needle, but because she knows nothing about anything else and is a victim of the popular fallacy that all women can sew, whether they have ever tried or not. Arthur's commented. So, and Rain also noted that, in general, American sewing skills left much to be desired. How many women are there who can make a beautiful buttonhole, she asked. How many who can do fine and elegant needlework, as it is used to be done before the era of sewing machines? The average seamstress makes everything on a crazy machine that runs off the track persistently, and what she finishes with the needle is an awful alternative. Hand sewing is still considered superior to machine work, and the goods sold in the ladies' exchange and in some of the best stores in the large cities are of fine needlework. There are several stores in New York devoted to the sale of ready-made underwear, all of which is done by hand, and the prices are proportionately high. This was actually written in articles from the late 1800s, early 1905. So... Yes, Americans were not really well known for their seamstress work. And even today, in couture fashion, hand sewing is still very much a thing of beauty and very much used and exercised in the higher-end garments that you see. But I digress. Ugh. So... It's just, 
the women back then were really good at optical illusions of to make them fashionable silhouette. And again, people knew that when stripped down, a woman's natural figure was different than when clothed. And while these days you have to achieve a near identical hourglass figure naturally and maintain it, or you're then considered fake if you use helps to achieve that hourglass frame and silhouette. And people feel betrayed and somehow cheated and slighted. Thus, the reason it feels that women are held to far higher physical standards today than they were back then. Oh, and men feel it too, by the way, thanks to superhero Marvel Avengers movies and shows like Game of Thrones and The Witcher and stuff, because I love me some Witcher. I enjoyed, I enjoyed the video games. I never really got into the books, but um, Netflix, you're amazing. Thank you for creating that. Anyhow, like, and with more social media becoming more and more the norm, I mean, people are definitely feeling these higher standards to look a certain way. So I suppose the overarching thing here is acceptance. Accepting that you're not going to look the same in a bikini as you do in a ball gown. And that's okay. And with those memes, go to a pool on your first date for a swim to see if she looks the same wet. And things of that nature. While I giggle at them and find the irony in them, they are now being taken a bit too seriously. Again, like I said, there will always be critics, but one has to block out that noise. And back in these bygone eras that we overly criticize, they at least understood what a natural body was clothed versus unclothed. And if a woman used helps, she wasn't horribly knocked for it. You also see the trends and how they evolve and devolve as society ebbs and flows as well. Trends come and go, but bodies stay relatively the same. Measurements for women back then are no different than the measurements for women today. And a lot of the extant garments that you see, existent garments from yesteryear and the Victorian era, you have to also understand that a lot of those extant garments are no different than mock-ups for Milan runways today. They, if, if a woman has her mother, like her great-great-great-grandmother's Victorian wedding dress from like 1890 today you have to understand that was before her great-great-great-grandmother got married and so she was a young woman primarily like 17 18 possibly a little bit younger because you know again society was a little different back then but I mean even at 25, my body wasn't the same 
as when I was 18. And that dress was probably a family heirloom that great-great-great-granny had specially made for her wedding day and therefore only wore it once. And it's no different today. Here I am, 32 years old, about to be 33 in 2020. And I kept my prom dress because, you know, sentimentality and it was expensive and it was pretty and I can't fit into that. Now, three kids, how many, like 13 years later? Yeah, no, there's no way I can fit into that. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, if I worked out and really, 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 really dieted, then maybe I might be able to squeeze into it. But unfortunately, pregnancy, birthing kids, my hips have separated and literal bone structure has changed. So yeah, it's not going to fit the same that it did back in high school. So people with these gowns that we see in museums and stuff, you have to understand either A, those were for particular events one-time wear or maybe a few, like a season, worn for a season. And they were just so beautiful that they kept them, but they, and they didn't recycle them. Also, a lot of the gowns back then got recycled because thread was expensive. Cloth was expensive. Like, you know, people didn't waste. Waste not, want not. So you don't see near the waste. And I am going to go into some ethical clothing because that's, that's, that's one thing that really also in this process, not only learning to accept bodies and realizing that they weren't skinny and they weren't super like waspish waists. They didn't have like these itty bitty waists back in the 1800 Victorian and Edwardian eras. They, they had things to help them, which also brings up the point of the corset. Most corsets, most corsets were not lined with baleen and, oh, okay. So, uh, I just, Mm, yeah. All right. Yeah. So again, I, I suppose the overarching thing here is acceptance. So, um, yeah, bodies have stayed relatively the same throughout the ages and extremes of anything aren't healthy. Finding balance is hard, but it can be mutually agreed upon and it can be done. And I'm not for body shaming and for quote, celebrating unhealthy extremes to skinny anorexia nor obesity. Not going to celebrate either of those, and I'm not going to knock you for either of those. I'm just going to tell you real like, hey, hey, that's not exactly healthy. If you're healthy about it, fine. If, But, ugh, I just wish we could hear more middle ground voices, but critics will always be heard the loudest because... They're the loudest minority that have the biggest balls. They don't care. 
they just shout on their milk stands, their milk crates, and scream at you. And you're just kind of like, why are you screaming? What are, wait, what are you screaming about? So, and even in those bygone eras, critics of corsets made their little cartoons. The modern version today are now memes. They used to be like the little caricature cartoons in newspapers and stuff, but in our modern era, we've now turned them into memes. Um, and, and these little cartoons that were completely satirical and overly critical, but the reality was not the caricatures in these cartoons. The reality was most corsets had cording. Basically, imagine a really thick boot shoelace or like little rope cording rather than stiff steels, wood or baleen whalebone. It's not actual whalebone. It's baleen, which, you know, in the is like the filter system for the baleen whales. And it has the consistency of, like, a human nail. So, anyways. <laughs> and most women knew corsets didn't have to close completely in the back once laced up. Like, today, most of my friends that wear corsets are like, Oh my gosh, I'm so fat because my corset doesn't close in the back. Bitch, it's not supposed to. <laughs> if, if your corset is is completely coming close, either A, you're lacing it way too damn tight, or B, uh, it's an ill-fitting corset and it's too big for you? Like, it shouldn't completely close. Like, that's, that's, that's not, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. That's not exactly a good thing. So calm yourself. It's fine. <laughs> I used to be one of those, by the way, that, um, would get upset when my corset wouldn't close in the back completely. So speaking from experience, being transparent here. And again, once going into historical dressmaking and actually getting into the meat of it, like, it's fascinating. It's fascinating how little we actually understand. Plus, not only that, but I will say this. Corsets are way more comfortable than bras. 110%, hands down, bar none, way more comfortable. First and foremost, corsets are not supposed to be worn on the skin. You are always supposed to have an underlayer between the corset and your skin. So, trust me, ladies, you wear a camisole under a corset and then wear a shirt over the corset, you're going to be comfortable all damn day long. Really, you are. Plus, only that, but there's not, the, like, this little tiny strap. So, this, like, the pressure in the surface area that it supports, it supports more surface area. So, therefore, it's not horrible. And most women in the Victorian era that wore corsets, I will say this, a lot of them would put on their chemise, put on their drawers, put on their stockings, put on their boots, and then they would put on their corset and they would pull it. They would pull it rather snug before tying it. They would then fix their hair 
and they would do whatever little makeup they would do. Um, cause back then in the Victorian era, they really didn't do a lot of makeup. It wasn't until, um, end of Victorian era, beginning of the 1900s Edwardian era that they actually started to do a little bit more makeup. They were more conservative, but either way they would lace up their corsets. They would do their hair, style their hair and get ready for the rest of everything. And so that way their body had a chance to settle into the corset and it gave them a little bit of wiggle room, and then they would just secure, they would probably just adjust a little bit. They would be doing normal movements without their corset tied and completely finished. No, no, nay, nay, friends, nay, nay. They would pull the corset, get it snug, not tie it, go about bending, twisting, lifting their arms so their body would naturally settle into the corset for natural movements because practicality. They were very practical. So, and they just didn't use a lot of the steels and the wood and the baleen. Most people weren't that rich. Those were expensive materials. So they used a lot of cording to keep their shape and to help. And when you've got bits of rope that bend and move with you, huh, they're not near as uncomfortable as you think they are. So then after the woman was finished doing her hair and everything, then she would just readjust a little bit, make minor adjustments, and then pull her corset and tie it off and secure it and then continue getting dressed. So corsets, like we have a huge gross misunderstanding of corsets and how they actually functioned and how they were supposed to be properly utilized. So yeah, anyways, eh, eh. Just a few meandering thoughts for the closing of the year and just to kind of also let you guys know, like, yeah, no, I've totally gone down this rabbit hole of creating and crafting and sewing, and I've learned quite a few things, and they're very fascinating and interesting, and I will share a lot more with you. But also going into the new year, again, um, closing off the second season of Misplaced Underdogs with this episode. Fitting that it should be the last episode of the year of 2019. Um, going into the new year, 2020, definitely be going into more about like my sewing and historical garbage because I'm a total trash for historical stuff. And again, I find that when working on these historical recreations, um, it's, it's really fascinating learning. There's, there's so much you can actually learn from fashion about society through what they wore, why they wore it, how they wore it and stuff. It's just, it's interesting because it all kind of reflects art imitates life. Life imitates art. What came first, the chicken or the egg? I mean, great existential crisis causing questions and conundrums that I don't know. I find fascinating. Um, I'm also going to obviously, uh, talk about next year 
quite a few other changes, um, more on mental health as well, um, and parenting. And so, uh, yeah, we're going to just kind of hit a bunch of life topics. So in positive, healthy ways. So with all of this said, um, and the closing of this year, I wish you all the best in the new year to come. Uh, please be safe out there. Uh, and I'll see y'all next year. Be safe, create, and see y'all next week in a new year. <laughs> Bye.